church. We've uh, really been thankful for so many things since coming to Orange County. The Lord has been gracious to us. One uh, unexpected blessing really has been the landlords that the Lord has given us and the house that God has given us to, to rent. Uh, we appreciate the house we're renting very much. And of course, we naturally want to show appreciation for that house by taking good care of it, right? right? We, we, we want to show that we appreciate it. Could you imagine my shame if our landlord knocked on the door and came in to find not just the messy house, which does happen sometimes, but the house just devastated. Imagine if he came in and there were holes in the walls, overflowing garbage cans, water damage, ink stains on the new laminate floors, maybe a horrible stench of something dead wafting through the house as he comes in. Could you imagine if he walked into, the, into our backyard, which is a pretty backyard, with three beautiful fruit-bearing citrus trees. We have an orange tree, a lemon tree, and a lime tree. And imagine instead he still found those three trees, not just without any fruit, but wilted and brown, maybe just a few leaves hanging on. I can imagine him saying, what have you done to my beautiful trees? Imagine the shame that Melissa and I would feel. Really, we desire to be anywhere but there at that moment, right? What have we done with our landlord's property? Now, brothers and sisters, we know that the Lord Jesus is coming back. So my question for you this morning is, how will he find us when he comes? How will the Lord Jesus find us when he returns? Because we do belong to him. We are his property, right? In 1 Corinthians 7, 23, it says that we are bought with a price. Acts 20, 29 reveals that that blood, that the blood of Jesus is the price that he paid for us. So when Jesus returns for his property to gather us, how will he find us who belong to him? Will he find us pure and blameless or muddy and stained? Will he find us full of fruit or withered and desolate? In Paul's prayer for the Philippians this morning, we'll hear how to be ready when Jesus returns. To be before him pure and blameless with our boughs bent with the fruit of righteousness. So let's listen together from Paul's prayer here so we can together joyfully and expectantly await Jesus' return so we can look forward to his return. Let's, let's, we'll start at verse 1 of uh, Philippians 1 just to get context here. Philippians 1 verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from a God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. We're going to be focusing on these three verses this morning. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we know that you do all things for your glory and that you are working uh, really an amazing uh, picture that will be uh, celebrated for Uh, through eternity of how you've worked in the lives of humans to make them like your son and bring glory to yourself. We praise you, Father, that you are bringing glory to yourself, that you're in the process of doing that uh, even now. And we thank you, God, for how your word uh, really makes clear here that the way that we uh, grow 
uh, in bringing glory to you, the way that we are ready for the return of Christ is by growing and abounding in love. So I pray, Father, that you would be using your word and this prayer of Paul uh, to be working in our hearts so that our love would abound still more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week from Paul's prayer, uh, we, we looked at verses 3 through 8 last week, we saw how Paul prayed for the, for the Philippians. We see that. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. He, the, the Philippians and the church in Philippi was deeply loved by Paul. He had planted this church along the northeast corner of Greece approximately 10 years previously. We, see it, we saw in this prayer, he prayed thankfully and continually, inclusively for all of them, joyfully, fervently. He had this overflowing emotion for all of them that led to his worshiping the Lord. We saw how Paul prayed, but we really focused most on why Paul prayed for them this way. And we saw three reasons why Paul could pray this way. It's because of their partnership in gospel ministry. The Philippians had supported Paul again and again in his missionary endeavors after leaving Philippi. But it was more than that. They were gospel partners. They were fighting together for a common cause. They were working together to see God's gospel advance. They had this gospel partnership that they shared. It was because of their, gospel, their partnership in gospel ministry that Paul prayed this way, but it was also because of his confidence in God's power we saw in verse 6. I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Being confident in what God was going to do in their lives led Paul to pray, not to be passive in prayer, but to be passionate in prayer, knowing what God was going to do in their lives. So he was able to pray with joy and enthusiasm, knowing that God was going to finish the work that he had began. We also saw that he prayed because of his devotion to God's people. He says, it's only right for me to feel this way about you all. I have to pray this way about you because you're in my heart. I have the affections for you of Christ Jesus. I love you with Christ's own love. And so that's why Paul prayed this way, but then we're going to focus this week on what Paul prayed for. We're, we're going to see what Paul prayed for. Now, I have no doubt that Paul probably pay, prayed many things for them. And, and the more we uh, uh, learn about what was going in the church of Philippi, the more clarity we'll have about what Paul was praying for them. I'm sure he was praying that God would take care of their financial needs. We learn from, from the rest of the New, the New Testament that the church of Philippi was very generous, but also very needy. We see in this own letter how Paul, I'm sure he prayed for their steadfastness, for their boldness in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the opposition to the gospel that they were facing. I'm sure he prayed for their protection from false teachers. Maybe he even prayed, prayed specifically for God to unify Euodia and Syntyche and to help with that conflict that they were going through. It's tough for, to imagine Paul thinking the church in Philippi and not praying for these kinds of things. But when it came time for Paul to share with them what he was praying for them for, those weren't the kinds of things that Paul mentions. Instead, what Paul's prayer was, it really was simple, that they would abound in love. That they would abound in love. We see that in verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. In Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 11, that the Philippians would abound in love. Paul explained what it means to abound in love. And he explains what the result of their abounding in love would be. And this morning, from Paul's prayer in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, we'll see that our abounding in love is essential to our joyful anticipation of the return of Christ. That our abounding in love is essential to our joyful anticipation of the return of Christ. So our looking forward to him coming, for our eagerness for us to be found by him. Blameless and pure and flourishing with fruit. We're going to answer two questions this morning about abounding love so that when Jesus comes, he will find us what Paul describes here. Finishing up, uh, yeah, uh, so let's see, in 
So, so in verse 9, in verse 10, so that he'll find us sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's how we want to be found by the Lord Jesus when he returns. Sincere, blameless, and abounding in fruit. So let's look at that first question first. What does it mean to abound in love? What does it mean to abound in love? We can see this beginning in verse 9. We really kind of have to start off with the definition of what the word love means. Now, love is really a pretty good translation of the Greek uh, uh, word uh, 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 agape here. There's really not a better word. Uh, but the problem is that we use the English word love for so many things. We love our kids, we love our spouses, we love our spouses differently than we love our kids. We love coffee, we love cars. Valentine's is all about love, but when a kid gives a valentine to another kid, it's very different from when a husband gives a wife a valentine. We use love for all kinds of things. If we look in a Greek lexicon, it says the quality of warm regard for an interest in another. Some, some synonyms are esteem, affection, regard, and love. So in, in, in classical Greek, the period of Greek before the New Testament is written, the word agape is kind of a bland word. It's used as a synonym for two other Greek words, and you've probably heard of these. One is, is phileo, excuse me. Uh, and, and that phileo love is talking about the attraction that people have to one another who are close together, whether that's inside a family or outside of a family. It includes concern and care and hospitality. It's love for uh, uh, love in the sense of being fond of. So this kind of love is really love that you have for people who share maybe common interests or common relationship. It's really kind of a, a natural affinity kind of love. So that's not the agape love we're, 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 we're talking about here. Another Greek word for love is, is, is eros, which is the love between a man and a woman, which embraces all the sense of, of longing and craving and desire. Now, eros could be used of talking about God too, or, or, or in the Greek pantheon, the gods, and that there's this desire to, to love them in this transcendent kind of emotional way. But that's not the word that Paul uses here. Really, uh, in, classical, in classical Greek, this word agape was rarely used of the way that someone would worship a god, or when someone's favored by God, when someone's loved by God. And when it is, it's interesting, it's, gen- it's a generous move by a god to someone for their sake. So it's a generous move by one of the Greek gods to someone for their sake, for their good. So if we kind of put some of this together, good definition of love, and, and, and this comes from, from Gordon Fee's commentary, is it's a sober kind of love. A sober kind of Now that doesn't mean it's not emotional, it doesn't have emotion with it, but that, but that, that the mind is involved too. It's a love that places a high value on a person or a thing which expresses itself, that love expresses itself in seeking the benefit of the one loved. So it's love that puts a high value on something and then seeks, or a person, and then seeks the benefit of that person. So it's valuing and then expressing that value, expressing that value, that, that, that benefit. It's not a sexual desire. It's not a desire for an experience. It's not a friend or family's love for those who are closely connected, although this word is used within the body of Christ, but it's valuing highly and then acting that value out and then acting in an appropriate way. This love, this agape love, is a choice. It's a committed act of the will to do what's best for someone. It's a selfless action to benefit someone else. And we can think about that with God's love to us. It's a commitment. It's a selfless action to benefit us. Now, it's not just a, a, a cerebral choice, though. It's not just like, like entering into a business contract. It's not devoid of emotion, this word. It's still affectionate. It's still warm. In fact, it's the word that God, uh, the, uh, that, the, that is used of 
God the Father's love for God the Son. And we see this in John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's that, 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 that agape love there. Just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. The Father's love for the Son is agape love. It's a love that values and that works for his good. Jesus' love for the Father uses the same kind of word in John 17, 26. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known to them so that the love which you have loved may be in them and I in them, the love with which you loved me. And that's, again, that agape love. God the Father values God the Son. And God the Son values God the Father. It's Jesus' love for the Father. As well, it's also used of God the Father's love for us. We see that in 1 John 4.10. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What a great example of agape love. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He values us enough to save us, and in so doing, sends his son. He acts in our benefit. But this love is also used in Matthew 5.44, when Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So yes, it is the word that is used for the Father's love for the Son, and the Son's love for the Father, and the Father's Son's love for us. But it's also the word that we're supposed to love our enemies. And I think that shows us it's not, it's not just a warm, fuzzy love, right? It's a decision. It's a, 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 a love with a commitment with it. It's the love that God has for his enemies, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, notice here in, in Philippians 1.9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. Paul doesn't define who the object of the love is. And, and some commentators will say it's God, and some, people, and some commentators will say that it's one, it's one another. And I think a case can be made for both, but I think that Paul doesn't make that distinction here because he doesn't want to. He could have if he wanted to. We're committed in Scripture to have love for both God and one another. In fact, Jesus says what well, the two greatest commandments are in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We are supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. We're supposed to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. And really, those two loves are connected. The more we love God and the more we comprehend his love for us, the more we're going to love others. So really, Paul doesn't have to make a distinction. If we grow in our love for God as he truly is, we are going to love one another. Now, let's return to the definition of what kind of love we're talking about. I I just want to refresh here. It is love that chooses to value and acts accordingly. So whether that's choosing to value brothers and sisters in Christ because they they were those for whom Christ died, whether it's choosing to value those who don't yet know him because them being made in God's image and facing judgment, whether it's choosing to value God because of who he is. In Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 6, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, with your whole being, because that's what God deserves. It's appropriate. Deuteronomy 13, verse 4. And, 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 and I like the range of verbs here. Really, I think all of these verbs are, are an expression of how we're to love God. So listen to some of these verbs. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. All of those words are really expressions of what love is. It's following him and clinging to him and serving him. As we think about, so that is what God deserves. It's valuing him appropriately and giving him the, the, love, the love that he deserves. As we value one another appropriately and give them the love that they deserve, really the, 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 the parable of the Good Samaritan is a great example of that in Luke 10, 25 to 37. We see there what it means to love our neighbor. And really there is an example of loving our enemy, of sacrificing for them. There's, in a sense, in a human way of thinking, there's no reason why the Samaritan should have loved this beaten up Jew. There was animosity between these two people groups. But we see he goes through great personal costs to do what is good for them. He values this, this, this man lying alongside the road and sacrifices. So questions to ask are, do your sacrificial love, does, does your sacrificial love for God reflect his value? 
Does the way that you love God show his value? That's what love does. It expresses value through action, through commitment, through affection. Does your sacrificial love for people show their value? Whether it's for those we know who have been purchased with the blood of Christ or those who are broken creatures like yourself, not yet saved. Made in God's image. So is your love reflecting the value of God and the value of others made in God's image? So that's what we can look there is what the definition of love is. It's this placing a high value and then seeking the benefit of. Placing a high value on and seeking the benefit of. But there's also the quantity of love here that Paul talks about. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Abound. It's really a favorite word of Paul. It's talking about excess to excess and overflowing. It's uh, when you go to to, to 7-Eleven or Target and you get one of those ices, you know, and you know they have the dome lids, right? So you put the dome lid on and you know you're going to get it to the very top of that dome lid, right? Because you spent like a dollar on that and it's going to be filled. But what happens every time? It overflows, right? Right? Now, that's not necessarily a good thing. It gets real messy. It just comes down so quickly and it compacts. I don't know what it does in there. But have you guys ever had the experience of overflowing that dome lid? That's the kind of love he's talking about, abounding love. It's like a river that is perpetually overflowing the banks. It is always getting bigger and bigger, not receding. Okay? So that river, as it goes, gets more and more. It's always expanding. It's an abounding love. It's not just more. He doesn't just pray that your love may abound more. He says that your love may abound more and more. And even further than that, your love may abound still more and more. The Philippians already had love, but it was to abound without limit, to be an ever-increasing, ever-growing love. The limitless God cannot be overloved. Right? The limitless God cannot be overloved. His vastness, his infiniteness, his goodness, his mercy calls for an ever-abounding love. Our love has to match up with his infiniteness. We're going to get to keep trying that for eternity. We shouldn't be satisfied with a little growth in love. We should be expecting and striving after and praying for a miraculous growth in our love for him and in our love for one another. Our love has to be like the, uh, our love should be like the widow's oil in 2 Kings 4, verses 1 through 7. And you might remember that story with the widow had nothing but a little jar of oil and she was destitute, couldn't pay back her debtors. And so Elijah says, go get all the jars that you can. Go borrow them from neighbors. And what we saw miraculous abounding there. That little jar of oil, it gets poured and it fills up jar after jar, right? That's what our love should be like, abounding. It should be like abounding, a miraculous abounding, like the five loaves of bread and two fishes, feeding 5,000 men plus women and children, abounding love. Have you been paying attention to the quantity of your love? Or as you look back, maybe over the next year, the last couple years, have you been content with some love? Have your affections for the Lord Jesus flourished? Has your love for God the Father abounded? Has your love for one another increased? Right? This is, and like, what's so cool about this is that this is, this is good stuff, right? This is talking about love. This, this is not heavy burdens. I'm not saying this to just make you feel weighty and bad. It's like, have you had more amazing? Right? It's encouraging. It's refreshing. To love the Lord, to value him as he is, is a good thing. So have and pursue this abounding love. Have you been praying for an abounding love? What a sweet thing to pray for. Lord, help me love you more today than I did yesterday. Help me to value you more than I did yesterday. Help me to appropriately reflect your value more than I did yesterday. 
So we see here Paul, well, we had to kind of give the definition of love because we're not, you know, speaking ancient Greek. There's also the quantity of love, abounding yet more and more, still more and more. But there's also the trajectory of love. And we see that here in verse 9. Still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. In real knowledge and all discernment. Paul didn't leave it to the Philippians to wonder how love should grow or what does it look like to have abounding love. He gave some parallel tracks for love to increase on in real knowledge and all discernment. And kind of the, the, the idea here is love growing in the sphere of real knowledge and in the sphere of discernment, in the fence of discernment, the fence of real knowledge. But I like to think about it as, as directions that love needs to go down. In real knowledge, knowledge here isn't just head knowledge. The word is used by Paul of knowing spiritual reality. In Romans 3.20, he uses it, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's not just knowing you've sinned, it's getting the weight of your sin. It's the real knowledge of sin. That same word for knowledge is used in Ephesians 4.13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. It's not just saying I know things about Jesus, but that I get Jesus. I get the reality of the Son of God. 1 Timothy 2.4, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Not just that I can repeat to someone the gospel facts, but that I know the gospel in a saving way. Now, the word real in your, new, in your New American Standard Bible is not there in the Greek, but the translators are trying to bring out the, the nuance here when they say real knowledge. It's, the, the word is just knowledge, uh, but, they're, but they're, they want to bring out real knowledge. It's different from just knowing facts. It's getting it. It's the kind of knowledge that has built into it an appropriate response. It's the kind of knowledge that has built into it an appropriate response. So, for example, this kind of knowledge uh, uh, is after when Peter falls down at Jesus' feet after the miraculous catch of fish in, in Luke 5, 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That is real knowledge. That's the appropriate response. He got who Jesus is, so he falls at Jesus' feet. It's an appropriate response like the tax collector in Jesus' parable in Luke 18, 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's real knowledge. See that appropriate response there to who God is. It's, as we saw on Good Friday, the response of the thief who knows, who gets who Jesus is and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Luke 23, verse 42. All of these are examples of real knowledge that overflows into the appropriate response. They get it. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just facts. Loving God is not just knowing that God feeds the birds, but knowing God enough to trust him to provide. Loving God is not just knowing that God hates sin, but knowing him enough to turn off the television. Loving God is not just knowing God is merciful, but knowing him enough to forgive one another. Loving God is not just knowing God is gracious, but knowing him enough to believe that he hasn't jinxed your day because you got up late and didn't have a quiet time. Loving God is not only knowing God is just, but knowing him enough, but knowing him enough to rest because he is going to reveal his righteousness in time. Loving God is not just knowing God loves you, but knowing him enough to be content with his love, to be satisfied with his love. This is the kind of real knowledge that our love must grow in. It's love that gets it. So when you read in God's word, ask yourself, do I know this or do I know this? Okay? Again and again, we read things that we know, but do I get it? Is it true to me? Do I have an appropriate response to this truth? The more you get it, the more you realize the reality behind 
what God's word says, the more you'll love him, the more you'll love one another. And then almost as if to protect us from getting too focused on the knowledge aspect of love, Paul gets real practical. And so if we're supposed to grow in real knowledge, it's, we're also supposed to grow the parallel track is in all discernment. Love must grow in knowledge and discernment. Discernment is the practical and appropriate application of knowledge. Okay, discernment is a, pla- is a practical and appropriate application of knowledge. It's tact. It's knowing the right response for each, sit- for each situation we find ourselves in. The Greek word for discernment here is the, uh, a word that's often used in Proverbs to talk about our speech. It's knowing how this, what needs to be said at just the right moment. It's not just talking about discernment in speech, though. It's talking about all discernment. Knowing what's the right thing to do in every kind of, of situation. And just like the two rails on a track, real knowledge and discernment are inseparable. We need to have both of them parallel. Love knows, gets the grace that we've been given, and discerns, because of that grace, we're going to thank God instead of complain. Love knows that God is sovereign over how long we'll live. But love also discerns whether it's time to make a change in our diet. Love knows that a day in God's courts are better than a thousand elsewhere, so discerns whether or not to watch a basketball game. Love knows that all money belongs to God and discerns how best to steward that money. Love knows that the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep and discerns what it looks like for us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow. Love knows that people will live eternally and discerns whether now is the right time to have that gospel conversation with someone. Love knows that your brother or sister was bought with the precious blood of Christ, so it discerns how best to encourage them or exhort them or admonish them. Now, if your love is lacking real knowledge, it will also lack discernment. If your love is lacking real knowledge, it's going to lack discernment. You won't be loving people skillfully. You're missing part of the picture. So we do have to have that growing knowledge so that we can be better at discerning. At the same time, if our love is lacking in discernment, it is because of a lack of real knowledge. So when you go to fix that speck in your brother's eye and forget about the plank in your own eye, that's a lack of real knowledge. At the same time, someone who might uh, say that, that uh, uh, it's loving to advocate for gay marriage because we want people to be happy. They're missing real knowledge, right? Or maybe they're rejecting real knowledge. Real knowledge is going to lead to discernment. And discernment needs real knowledge. We need to have both of these things if we're going to be abounding in love. So when we explore what love is and what love does, we can see why Paul prayed that the Philippians would abound still more and more. Love is about aligning the reality of your days with the reality of who God is and responding to God and others because he is who he is, because of what he's done, and because of what he said he will do. So love is aligning the reality of your day as it's worked out in your real life situations and experiences with the reality of who God is and responding to God and others because God is who he says he is and because he's promised what he has promised and because he's doing what he is doing. That's what love does. It's matching up how we act with who God is. Now, as if we needed more motive than I think even just talking about love, Paul motivates the, the Philippians why they are to grow in love. He motivates them why they are to grow in love. And we're going to see that in verses 10 through 11 as we answer our second question. Why must we abound in love? Why must we abound in love? So Paul explains the reason for his prayer. And so let's pick it up at verse 9 again. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent. So we're going to see here that Paul really kind of looks at both some immediate results of abounding in love and then he's going to look at some, some kind of 
end, end time results, some final results of abounding in love. So let's look at that immediate result first in the first part of 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. Approve means to recognize or to accept them. And excellent means excellence. What's best, essential, vital, what excels. We have limited resources, right? We're spending one of our days. We're spending one of our hours. We have limited money, limited time. Where do we direct the resources that we're given? How do we choose to use the time before it ticks away? How do we choose what's excellent and steward it for what's excellent instead of just what's acceptable? The answer is found in love. But not in any kind of love. Love abounding in knowledge and discernment is essential to making the best choice. Love that's abounding in knowledge and discernment is essential to making the best choice. Only then can we approve of what is excellent. And that's the result of having this kind of love that's abounding in real knowledge and all discernment so that, we might, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, so that we make the best choice. And whether that's the best choice in the midst of a conflict with a brother or sister in the body of Christ whether it's to make the best choice in that short window of time before putting the kids down and our own dozing off, and choosing how to balance time ministering inside and outside of the church to those inside and outside of our home, those are tough choices. How do we approve what is excellent? It needs to be the overflow of our love of our abounding love, of our love that's abounding in real knowledge and all discernment so that we can improve what is excellent. When it comes to making a financial investment, not many of us are okay with acceptable when excellent is there, right? I mean, if you have your money in a savings account, well, I guess that's acceptable, maybe, kind of. And no, it's not really, right? It's pretty disappointing. You're like, uh, okay. Uh, but you can go for excellent. And we know that with our money, we need to do that. I want to make as much investment. I want to get as much of my investment as possible. Or when it comes time to purchase a cell phone, now this isn't true for all of us. Some of us don't care about cell phones. But if you're a cell phone person, you enjoy your smartphone, you just don't want to get an acceptable smartphone. There's lots of acceptable smartphones. You want to get an excellent one. You're like, this is, this is I don't know, the next time I'm going to buy one of these, I want to get an excellent one. You want to make an excellent choice. So if we do that with our money and with our possessions, if we want to approve what's excellent and things that really don't eternally matter, although those choices in themselves do. But, it, but if we're concerned about getting the best, how much more do we need to, to do that in the other areas of our life? To approve what is excellent. The immediate result of Paul's prayer is our approving of what is excellent. If we're all going to make great choices, it's because we're abounding in love. That's how we know what to do with our time, how we know what to do with our money. As our love abounds in real knowledge and all discernment, we will approve what is excellent. We will know what is good and we will do it. And then Paul motivates even further, not just by the immediate result, which that sounds like a pretty good result. We're going to be making great choices. There's also an end time result. There's, a fine, there's these final results to look forward to. We see them in the second half of 10 and verse 11. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having, fill, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So here's the first kind of final result. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Now, the word sincere means pure. It's the idea of something that's being held up to, to the sun uh, to see if it's genuine. If it's, if it's without anything defiling, blameless has the idea of something that gives no offense. There's nothing unsightly about it. To be blameless means that God looks at you, and, and although it's not talking about us being perfect, but that there's, there's no complaint. There's no accusation. You're blameless. 
Now, it says, sincere and blameless, pure and blameless, until the day of Christ. It, it doesn't have the idea here so much of hanging on. Oh, we just need to stay pure and blameless until the day of Christ. But instead of for the, 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 the day of Christ, in, pre, in looking forward to it, in, prep, in preparation. It's like the care a bride and a groom display on their wedding day and getting ready to see their future spouse. They're eager for that. They want to get ready. They want to, be, to look beautiful on that wedding day, or to look handsome on that wedding day, to make their future spouse happy. That's the idea here. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, to the day that he returns. Now, Paul had already encouraged, and we saw, the, and we saw this, he encouraged the Philippians last week in verse 6. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. But prayer isn't the only means that God uses to perfect us. God would also use their ever-abounding love, which would result in their proving what is excellent so that they would be pure and blameless. As we choose the excellent, our growing leads to growing purity. Our growing love leads to growing purity and growing eagerness and expectation of the return of Christ. We look forward to seeing him. There's no reason to shrink back at his appearing. We can't wait to see him. We want to reflect his own purity back to him. Now, we have to be clear here. We're not talking about the grounds of our acceptance with Christ. We're not talking about making ourselves pure and blameless. Romans 10, 10, 3, and we looked at that in our care groups, or we will soon, says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. We're not talking about making ourselves righteous so that we are blameless before God, able to be saved by him. We're talking about living out the reality that we have been made righteous by him. Our righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. We see in Romans 3.22. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knows, knew no sin to be, our, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God has already, if our faith, if our hope, if all of our trust is in Jesus Christ alone, has already declared us righteous. In a sense, before him, we are positionally blameless. We are as clean as Christ is clean. But we need to live that out in our lives. We need to be pure and blameless. And I know that some of you ha- have experienced that e- even a sense of, of trepidation or maybe uh, an unreadiness for Christ to come back. Because you know you're not living pure and blamelessly. Right? You're like, well, I don't want him to come back and see me the way that I am now. Now, everyone's heard stories of parents uh, who come back from a vacation early. And what happens in all those stories? The house is trash, right? Like there, like there was a party. and uh, Were those teens ready for their parents to come back? Teens were not ready for their parents to come back. Were they still their parents' children, though? Yeah, they were still their parents' children. We may not be as eager for Christ to come back because of the sin in our life, because we're not living pure and blamelessly. It doesn't mean that we're not his children if we have put our faith in him. But the more pure and blameless we are living, the more eager we are for the return of Christ, for him to finish what he's begun. We're on board with God's purpose. We can't wait for him to return. 1 John 3, 2-3 expresses this beautifully. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it's not appeared as yet what we will be. We're not finished yet. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. When we are longing for the return of Christ, we're like, I can't wait for him to come back because I'm going to be transformed to be like him. So what do we do? Everyone who has his hope purifies himself. We're not trying to make ourselves saved. We want to live out. We want to be pure and clean at his return. We want to be ready for our groom to come down the aisle. Now, lest we think that Paul is talking about them just kind of staying, not being offensive to Christ, or just staying away from big sins, Paul emphasizes a flip side here. So we saw in in verse 10b this final result, uh, uh, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, there's also this other side, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's not enough just to try to keep ourselves unstained from the world, to keep ourselves free from big, obvious sins, and then we're just kind of staying pure and blameless, just kind of walking 
the narrow road, abounding in love will lead us to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. The fruit, this phrase, fruit of righteousness here, I think Paul's describing the kind of fruit he's talking about. It's not the fruit of them being made righteous, but righteous fruit. It's not the source of a fruit he's talking about, but the kind of fruit. Those who abound in love won't just be a nicely manicured lawn, you know, where the nice is, the, it's all just perfectly green, and it's all cut to the same level. You're looking, you're like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's more than that. We're fruit trees. We're fruit trees, trees full of righteousness, who do what's pleasing to the Lord, who meditate on God's word, who thank God, who fulfill the roles that God's given us, who are zealous for good works, who are generous, who use the gifts that God has given. Now, this fruit, filled with the fruit of righteousness, is the result of this abounding love, which leads to them approving what is excellent. So as we, so we just don't say no to sin, we also say yes to obedience. We are filled with the fruit of righteousness, but this fruit comes through Jesus Christ. The fruit on our trees because we are in the soil of Jesus Christ himself. Their fruit is through Jesus Christ. Jesus has a slightly different word picture in John 15, 4 through 5. Abide in me and I in you. And abiding really has all, has a ton to do about loving him and really expressing his value through keeping his commandments, through loving him. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Any fruit of righteousness in us is through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source of our new life. We are in him. He is the garden in which we are planted. He is the water which our roots drink. He is the sun that our leaves are turned up towards. It is all through him that we can have any fruit of righteousness at all. Now, this fruit of righteousness is not an end in itself. It's not so that we can be praised and saying, wow, good job, lots of fruit. The harvest of righteousness leads us to celebrating the gardener. The fruit, which is through Jesus Christ, is to the glory and praise of God, it says in verse 11. Imagine wandering through an orchard, looking at abundantly productive trees, being amazed at what the gardener has done. You're just walking along. I, I don't have, have any of you been in, or, in an orchard before? In an or, orchard? I don't know. Do they have orchards in here? Yeah? Okay. okay, so you're walking along, and just the trees are just overflowing. I don't know if it's apples in Washington. It's apples here. It seems to be more like lemons and oranges. But just, just abundant fruit, overflowing with fruit. And as you look, you're just like, you're, it's just amazing. It's even more amazing when you know what the gardener has done. That he took discarded, dead, unrooted, withered trees lying on the side of the road, completely dead, planted them, and brought this fruit from them. And that, those trees that you're like, this is amazing, are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't that exciting? And even what's most exciting, you know, when you look at yourself, and the fruit on your tree, which Christ has produced through you. Because you know, better than anyone else ever will, besides God himself, how wicked you are. Right? How selfish you are. And the fact that there's any fruit is only through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Now, all of these final results, being sincere and blameless on the day of Christ, being filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ, ultimately the glory and praise of God, are the result of our approving what is excellent. And how do we approve what's excellent? Well, we have to go back to verse 9. By our love abounding still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And how does our love abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment? Paul knows. How? We pray for it. Right? We pray for it. That's what Paul was praying for the Philippians. This is really how God's name is hallowed in our church. This is how God's kingdom comes. This is how his reign is evidenced by our praying for this love to abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. That's how we need to pray for one another. Will you pray for one another that they would have this kind of abounding love? Will you pray that for your spouses, for those in your care group, for, for your children who know him? 
for our children who don't know him, that they would get this kind of love? For those in other churches, for our dear missionaries, that their love would abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. God is going to use your prayers to accomplish this work so that we approve what is excellent and be sincere and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. And then we do know, and Philippians talks about this, we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We should be working at loving more. So we need to grow in our love to know God in all of his attributes, to really get them, to know Christ in his roles as king and as priest and as shepherd, as brother, as husband, to know the gospel in its power, to know the church as bought with the precious blood of Christ, to know the lost as those who are facing eternity away from God's presence, to know God's word and to be one of those Psalm 1, 2, and 3 trees, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Well, you work hard at saying, I want to grow in this love. Get into God's word and say, Lord, I want to love you more. I want to value you and express that through the decisions that I make. I want to love others more and express that through the decisions that I make. I want to be approving what is excellent. So we began by asking, how will Jesus find you when he comes? Will he find you sincere, blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness? 1 John 2.28 says, Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Abide in him. Have abounding love. Look forward to the return of Christ. Be eager for it. Is that how God, the Son, will find you when he comes? Sincere, blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. It will be as we abound in love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, so easy here to know what to pray for. We pray, Lord, that we would abound in love. We would abound in love still more and more. I thank you, Father, uh, for those who are in your Son, who are planted in his soil and drinking from the water of life who are in his light and for the fruit that you are accomplishing in our lives. Father, we're not talking about the kind of righteousness that we can uh, get, but the kind of righteousness that you give. We praise you, Lord, that you give that righteousness, but we want to be bearing out evidence to it in our lives. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be abounding in love still more and more, that we might approve what is excellent excellent, and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, being filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. We want you, Father, to be glorified in our lives as our love abounds. And I pray, Father, that you would help us all to have abounding love. I pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters uh, who who honestly would be shrinking away at your return, even though they have that faith, they're eager for Christ to return and rescue, but maybe not eager to show uh, what they've uh, been doing recently with the life that you've given them. I pray, Father, that you would encourage them. I pray, Father, that they would resolve in their hearts to abound in love still more and more. I pray, Father, for all of us that we would be abounding in love. I pray, Father, for your grace through your spirit that we would get truth, Lord. It's not just to get it in an emotional way, or that might be part of it, but to value what your word says and to act in a way that is, an, is appropriate, that matches up. So please, Lord God, help us to grow in love. We pray this through Jesus' name. It's only because of him that we can stand in your presence. Amen.